It's the 7th of May, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast, and hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. A lot of good news this week, interesting journal reports. Let's begin with the claims data analysis from Joe Marola. This appeared in Clinical Rheumatology, where they looked at the cost of having psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, and they did a match control group. And when they looked at all healthcare spending cost per patient, which do you think was more? Well, certainly not the controls, 7,000 for controls, 11,000 to care for psoriasis, and 29,000, that's almost three times higher than psoriasis for psoriatic arthritis. So there's ever any argument about which is harder to take care of, psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis? This is a no-brainer. This is like comparing Ginger Rogers to Fred Astaire. Ginger Rogers did the exact same thing Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and looked better doing it. I think that's how you might describe a rheumatologist. So psoriatic arthritis actually is quite costly. Uh, something we don't talk about often is falls. It happens to our patients. It happens as they get older. It happens when they're in pain. It's quite common with hip and knee disease patients, whether it's OA or RA. This particular study from the journal Rheumatology looked at 436 patients in the United Kingdom with rheumatoid arthritis and did a number of different analyses on them. And the takeaway on this was that falls are not uncommon in RA patients and that those who are more likely to have falls had the following features. They're more likely to be older, unmarried, have higher pain scores, have reported dizziness, have uh, psychotropic medications, and have lower overall uh, uh, quality of life scores. They also had gait abnormalities that were well described in the report. All this makes a great deal of sense. Pain, being older, psychotropic medicines, quality of life not being good. But being unmarried? What? Does that mean if you get married, if you fall in love, you'll never fall again? Does that mean that that if the, the reason you don't fall is because your spouse is there to catch you? I think it really means that a lot of unexpected things happen when you're uh, married and maybe not falling is one of them. I don't know. I find it interesting. Uh, the EMA came up with a decision this past week approving belimumab, also known as Benlista. I'll have a dose of Benlista um, for lupus nephritis. We know it's approved in the United States now for this. Now it's a, it's more of a worldwide thing. Um, and this comes as a result of recommendation of the CHMP. It can be used as either sub-Q therapy or as IV therapy along with background immunosuppressive therapies for patients with active lupus nephritis. I put this in here because I think it's another important announcement in drug development, um, especially for lupus. Um, I really want to discuss, though, when are we going to get around to using these new drugs for lupus nephritis? Uh, I don't think there's going to be a rush on it. I think that um, we need to maybe have some discussion about who is the ideal candidate here. Uh, if you wait to use this in people who have failed everything, you know, meaning they've been on the kitchen sink and all the immunosuppressives and cytotoxics and biologics you could ever think of, and now you're going to use it, well, you're sort of stacking the deck against what are potentially effective therapies like belimumab and vocal sporin um, for the treatment of lupus nephritis. 
I think we need to have a happy medium and to hear from the experts what their algorithm is uh, in this. I'm still going to use uh, azathioprine uh, and or mycophenolate in, as my mainstays in the management of lupus nephritis. I'm still, in some cases, would be, or bad cases, will be using the, um, the urolupus uro uh, protocol for cyclophosphamide. Um, but will this be like the use of rituximab in uh, vasculitis, where it's taken some time, but it has become the standard of therapy, both induction and maintenance for many patients? Again, more discussion is needed here. There was an interesting report coming out of CARA, the Pediatric Rheumatologist um, Meeting and Consortium that studies pediatric rheumatology. This appeared in Medscape, also in a pediatric journal. Uh, Dan Zhao talked about um, the development of toxicities uh, in, in, with TNF inhibitors and showed that um, JIA patients were at a threefold higher risk of TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis, what's also often called paradoxical psoriasis, paradoxical because TNF inhibitors are used to treat psoriasis, to have them occur as a complication of treatment, have psoriasis occur as a complication is what makes it paradoxical. The, num the number that I think is fairly well researched in the adult population, about one in a thousand, the rate that's seen in the pediatric population was 8.5 per 1,000 patient years. Again, these are relatively rare events. But if you use a lot of TNF inhibitors, you will see it. The best treatment for it, not covered in this study, it appears to be drug withdrawal. Switching classes doesn't seem to work as well. And a lot of these cases tend to have palmal pustular disease, which makes them more difficult to treat, and therefore maybe why you have to stop. Uh, a nested case control study out of the Danish registry looks at what happens to 8,000 psoriatic patients when followed longitudinally and looking at more comorbidities and mortality risks and whatnot. And they came away with an analysis that showed that pain as an independent variable does not affect mortality statistics in patients with psoriatic arthritis. And I think that's important because we often think about pain as being quite damaging, you know, stress kills sort of thing. People under constant pain or in constant stress, it therefore would follow the reason that maybe chronic pain might be uh, something that will foretell future bad outcomes, including death. But in this study, it did not. Um, and certainly we know the management of psoriatic arthritis is complex. Again, dancing backwards, Ginger Rogers. Um, but, uh, and there are other factors in play more than pain that are probably driving the bus on morbid and mortal risks. A nice study comes out of Taiwan that looks at risk factors for developing Kawasaki's disease. This is almost 4,000 patients that were studied. They found that Kawasaki's disease was more common in males. 50% higher um, in children who were born of older mothers who had birth um, after the age of 35, about a 20% in increase. Uh, and actually in their multivariable analysis, it was mothers who had ankylosing spondylitis who seemed to have the best risk, a twofold increased risk of having children with Kawasaki's disease. Never knew any of these facts. Not sure if they really will come into play, but you'll let me know. Another study from Japan looked at real-world comparison of what happens when you use JAK inhibitors in RA, in this case, specifically comparing who's going to do better, people treated with tofacitinib or baricitinib, about 140, 150 patients in both groups. Um, and they did special statistical modeling to 
um, uh, eliminate any of the potential bias in treatment as far as, you know, uh, maybe the sicker ones got this drug or whatnot. Anyway, uh, when they made their analysis, they showed that at week 24, um, baricitinib did outperform tofacitinib looking at CDI remissions, 40% versus 28%. Also, CDI, um, the Clinical Disease Activity Index, low disease activity state, 82% versus 69%. Safety was the same between groups. Now, this is done in Japan. Maybe the results might vary in your neck of the woods. You know, there are different dosing allowances in different countries that could have accounted for maybe a higher rate here. You're pretty restricted in the United States and Canada about what you can use. So, uh, but again, I think it's interesting because um, uh, tofacitin has been out on the market longer, has a greater market share, but baricitinib, guess what? It works. Just like upadacitinib, guess what? It works. And I think the factor here is that can you be switching amongst JAK inhibitors? Well, you certainly do that with TNF inhibitors. Why wouldn't you do it with JAK inhibitors or IL-17 inhibitors for that matter? The journal Lupus uh, looks at a meta-analysis of, uh, uh, of lupus patients and associations between hydroxychloroquine use and pregnancies and pregnancy outcomes. In nine studies, over 1,100 patients, they showed that taking hydroxychloroquine during lupus pregnancy was associated with a significant reduction in preeclampsia events, a 65% reduction, a significant reduction in pregnancy-induced hypertension, uh, almost a 60% reduction, and a significant reduction in premature births, a 45% reduction. However, being on hydroxychloroquine had no effect on development of diabetes, um, spontaneous abortions, or the HELP syndrome. I think all very interesting. We do know, you know, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin H is highly encouraged in lupus, highly encouraged during lupus pregnancy. Speaking of lupus, uh, I found this particular report. We made it a news report um, about kids and what happens to kids with childhood lupus as they grow up. What happens to them as far as their uh, professional and vocational development. This, uh, the title of it was, Childhood lupus ha may hamper adult careers. This is a study of 106 childhood onset lupus kids followed for over 20 years. And in the end, these kids often felt, half of them felt that their lupus affected their education and affected their uh, choice of vocations. Yet, when they compared, this was in the Netherlands, I believe, they compared the educational levels achieved by lupus patients, it was equal to the population age match controls. But the patient, the kids who grew up, felt like the disease affected them greatly as far as their education and their vocational choices. They also showed that of those who finished their education, and they defined whether it was college or, or secondary education, um, almost half, 44%, did not have a paying job. Of the ones who were employed, 61% were employed part-time. Now, I don't know about you, but I've worked in pediatric rheumatology clinics, and there's a holdover effect on the psyche of those kids in dealing with a chronic illness. You see this in kids who have diabetes and asthma and whatnot. Chronic illness um, can have significant psychologic and maturational effects. I don't know that this is very well handled um, in our current state of management 
I mean, our pediatric rheumatologists are doing a great job, but then, of course, when they get either taller than the pediatrician or pregnant or a criminal record, they then become adult rheumatology patients. And what are you doing to further the careers and education and to encourage those kids? Again, there needs to be, I think, some specific efforts in this regard and leave it up to CARA and the pediatric rheumatologist to get that done. An interesting report in JAMA, um, two interesting reports in JAMA looked at um, uh, the Arctic Rewind study showing that you shouldn't half the, the dose of your DMARD therapy if you're in remission. They don't do well. Flare rates are high. Uh, but the one that we put up and uh, we're going to talk about here is therapeutic drug monitoring, CDM, um, in patients receiving infliximab for a number of different disorders. This is a study of over 400 patients with immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, RA, PSA, SPA, uh, IBD, who were receiving infliximab and half were treated uh, in a standard manner without TDM. The other half were the subjects of TDM, therapeutic drug monitoring, where they did drug levels and anti-drug antibodies to help guide the dosing um, and uh, frequency of use in patients taking infliximab. In the end, the um, I want to say it was six-month outcomes, remission rates were exactly the same, 50.5% versus 53% in TDM and non-TDM groups, respectively, uh, safety outcomes were the same. So while TDM seems to be a standard in the management of IBD by our GI colleagues, most rheumatologists I know believe it doesn't work and it doesn't have a place in rheumatology management. So I don't do it. This um, particular study suggests maybe you shouldn't do it as well. I have a nice report in uh, the beginning of the week about uric acid as being a major player in the metabolic syndrome. The associations of uric acid are numerous uh, and not to be taken lightly. It's kind of scary. It's associated with hypertension, diabetes, the metabolic syndrome, um, uh, fatty liver, fatty deposition, um, uh, cardiovascular disease you certainly know about. Uh, I saw a patient this week who had a remote history uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago or two years ago, I can't remember, was his last attack. Now he's having other medical problems, comes to me just on PRN meds, has a uric acid of 9.3, no recent attacks. Am I going to treat that? At this point, we call it asymptomatic hyperuricemia. You bet, you bet I did. I put the patient on 100 milligrams of allopurinol and I'm going to treat the target. Uric acid elevations are dangerous. Um, and we need to be proponents of that particular stance. You can read that article. It's pretty well done telling you the pluses and minuses of these associations. I have a nice uh, uh, question this week in Backtalk. Dr. Yamini Menon from Memphis sends in a question about, do I use combination therapy in psoriatic arthritis patients who also have bad psoriasis? Um, would a combination regimen like a TNF inhibitor an IL-23 inhibitor work in refractory patients with both skin and active joint disease. This particular patient had previously failed with Tesla. A number of other TNF inhibitors she wanted to use in Fliximab, um, an IL-17 inhibitor, uh, secukinumab. What would I do? Um, and the answer to the question is, yes, I have used combination biologics. Um, it's generally frowned upon by the FDA and in the package inserts because They've not been studied. Package inserts only allow you to do things that have been studied, but you can do whatever you want. I've done a fair amount of Otesla, 
plus a biologic, TNF and is IL-17. Largely, the combination is born of frustration, and I can't say that that works all the time. Sometimes it has. Um, I have examples of patients who've done fat, horribly bad on all kinds of drugs and combinations of drugs, but it wasn't until I put you know the patient on a um, a TNF inhibitor and an IL-17 inhibitor, they did fabulous. Now, that's incredibly expensive therapy, and I'm fighting all the time with getting it approved. I think you need to think of such difficult cases in these terms. Um, number one, when you say a TNF inhibitor failed or an IL-17 inhibitor failed, you can swap or switch within a certain class. You do that with TNF inhibitors. You can take, if, if secukinumab didn't work, work, then why not ixekizumab? Why not berdalumab? That gives the patient another chance. The same thing can be said for IL-6 switching, JAK inhibitor switching, etc. The second thing is I would obviously first advocate before combination biologics, a combination of a DMARD and a biologic. The biologic, of course, could be any ones we just talked about. The DMARD would be clearly methotrexate. Areva I've used with a great deal of success. Otesla is really a DMARD, a con conventional synthetic DMARD, as is a JAK inhibitor. JAKs are not biologics. JAKs are DMARDs, oral, conventional, synthetic DMARDs. They just happen to be really expensive like a biologic. So I would use a JAK inhibitor plus an IL-17 inhibitor if I really was stuck and didn't know what to do. And you should consider using a JAK inhibitor. Um, right now, uh, only tofacitinib is approved for use in psoriatic arthritis. The other ones that are in development will probably be approved in the next several years for psoriatic disease, both skin and, and joint. But we need to wait and see. So combination biologics certainly be your last effort but then I want to remind you to look at the, um, the uh, blog that I wrote on Difficult RA. It's on Room Now, where instead of talking about all the advanced therapies, all the drugs you haven't tried, and people who failed everything but the kitchen sink, maybe you should be thinking about other things. Maybe there's disease here that's not modifiable. Maybe you shouldn't be focusing on inflammation and immune dysregulation as much as pain management, structural management management of comorbidities, management of fibromyalgia, uh, et cetera. Those are all very helpful when considering the um, management of someone with difficult psoriatic arthritis. I want to remind all of you to uh, check in um, on every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central for Tuesday Night Rheumatology, where we are doing highlights of Room Now Live 2021. Mar March's meeting is being repurposed for you. Um, we're going to have a one-hour session. You're going to hear excerpts of two or three lectures and then a lot of discussion, a lot of Q&A. Um, and uh, last week we had um, great sessions with uh, Eric Ruderman talking about advanced therapies in psoriatic arthritis, uh, Alexis Ogdi talking about the epidemiology of psori psoriatic disease, and Melanie Young, Melody Young talking about um, sort of mimics of psoriasis and her approach to assessing psoriasis. Really an interesting discussion. You can find that video and the podcast on the Room Now channel or your podcast channel. Next week on the 11th, Tuesday night, is Dr. Jeff Sparks and myself talking about lung disease and RA. Jeff's going to talk about ILD, one of his favorite subjects in RA. He's got great experience, a lot of great Jeff Sparks done research to back up his great talk. And I'm going to be talking about pneumonia as a complication of RA it's probably a lot larger than you think. That's Tuesday night. Be there. 
That's it for this week on the podcast. Go to this. Uh, go to the website. Find these citations and more. Um, share it with your friends. We'll see you next week on the podcast.